Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sam DeGregory was a molecular biology graduate at UCLA studying microbes in fish when he first started investing in cryptocurrency. Uh, I first came across crypto in 2016, right when I started my PhD. And I I think it was like $700 at the time, like one Bitcoin. He's currently finishing up his PhD research, which is where we caught up with him, in a shack on a beach in Ecuador. And so I bought a full Bitcoin. Yeah, and then I just kind of forgot about it. Went back on Coinbase about three years later and I saw that I had like... $5,000 in my wallet. Sam then sold roughly 75% of his crypto in the crypto bear market of 2018. But the coin he kept ballooned in value along with the rest of the crypto market in 2021. And then my assets went up to like $20,000, I think. But that return wasn't enough. But then, yeah, you know, then my brother told me like, hey, there's this new thing called Celsius. Instead of keeping it in Coinbase, you can put it in Celsius and make 10% interest. And, you know, I I was pretty skeptical at the time. I kept, like, telling him, like, that sounds way too good to be true. But, you know, every month he kept sending me screenshots of, like, the profit he was making. And finally I was like, okay, like, this seems legit. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you probably know where this is going. In June, Celsius froze all withdrawals before declaring Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I just, I could not believe it. I had, like... $15,000 in my account, which, you know, that's a huge amount of money for me. And I I think I was in denial for like probably a week. Like I was like, oh, for sure, like with Celsius, like, you know, they're going to fix it. Like they're the most legit lender, crypto lender out there. Celsius is currently going through bankruptcy proceedings with as much as $8 billion of customers' crypto assets frozen. Sam says he wants to see the industry made safer for people like him before he would consider getting involved in cryptocurrency investment again. For me to go back into crypto, um, I would have to feel like like I'm putting my crypto into a bank. So I think some kind of some kind of law like forcing them to keep enough on reserve would like motivate me to go back to crypto. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And in today's show, we follow up on our episode on the crypto winter by asking what's the best way to regulate the industry? We'll hear from Cynthia Lummis, the Republican senator from Wyoming, about legislation she's introduced in America. So we wanted to take what people already know about asset regulation and apply it to the extent that we can to the digital asset world. Then we'll hear from the chair of America's Commodities Futures Trading Commission, Rostin Benham, about why he thinks his agency should be the one to regulate the market. 
And given our experience in the commodity space, I think we are best suited to oversee the digital commodity market. We'll journey to Europe's biggest ether conference to hear more about the efforts to regulate the space there. I think the biggest thing that we've seen come to light is that on June 30th, 2022, uh, the European Union passed uh, or came to an agreement on MICA, the Markets and Crypto Asset Regulation. It is meant to be a very comprehensive piece of regulation. And we'll ask, what's the best way to protect consumers without also hobbling innovation? Hi, Mike and Sumaya. Hello. Hey, Alice. So it's my turn to complain about the heat now. It is absolutely boiling in Washington. I told you, frozen grapes. You're not finding the uh, the crypto winter a cooling experience. Good one, Mike. But you're quite right. We're dipping back into the crypto winter today. This episode builds on one we did a few weeks ago, where we talked through many of the recent scandals that have beset the crypto industry, which includes the collapse of the Terra Luna system to, as you just heard about, the demise of Celsius, and including you know, the many workers who have been hurt by layoffs at big players like Coinbase. I'm still actually haunted by the idea of finding out that my colleagues have been fired by noticing that they've just been removed from Slack. Um, I guess with us, we don't really use Slack. So maybe, Mike, one day I just see you removed from the WhatsApp group. Yep. That would be a little cruel. I would not enjoy that. But I would also not enjoy having $15,000 trapped in an account that I can't access. So Alice, what should regulators be doing to ensure that our WhatsApp group remains sacred? Yes, I'd be devastated if if we lost that. But regulators in America and Europe and the UK have recently been proposing a whole host of competing legislation aimed at protecting consumers, clarifying how existing financial regulation applies to crypto, giving old agencies new powers and trying to put some guardrails on the industry's biggest players like the trading platforms. Didn't people once argue that the point of this decentralization was that crypto was supposed to be independent from government meddling? Yeah, that was certainly the original argument for Bitcoin. But the industry has come quite a long way since Bitcoin was created. You know, the major exchanges like Coinbase, FTX, Binance, they're all centralized institutions. And those are the places where most retail consumers become exposed to the world of crypto, which makes them an obvious target for regulatory scrutiny. Crypto is also not just tokens now. It's more like its own little financial system. There are bits of it that look like banks, like the lending platforms like Celsius um, and issuers of stable coins. Those are just tokens that are pegged to the dollar, backed by the issuer's assets that people can use them to make payments, a lot like they can with bank deposits. And this crypto winter, a lot of regular people be they depositors in Celsius or another lending platform called Voyagers, uh, holders of stable coins like Terra, They've all lost money because these sort of new kinds of crypto institutions or tokens misrepresented how they worked or were making unrealistic promises. And that's really fueled the push for more guardrails to be put in place to prevent consumers like Sam, who we heard from at the beginning of the show, being taken for a ride. And it's it's more than that. You know, lots of crypto insiders want regulation to give them some certainty about where regulators are comfortable experimenting. The key question is you know, what regulation would work best. Right. There's a trade-off between protecting consumers and stifling innovation. And it's not clear, for instance, that the traditional financial industry and its regulatory framework have necessarily always got that balance right. Yeah. But before we debate what that balance is, should we first look at what regulators and legislators are proposing? That sounds like a great idea. Let's start with the big piece of legislation that was introduced by Wyoming's Republican Senator Cynthia Lummis 
and New York's Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand earlier this year. Yes, that sort of big bill proposes that existing regulators will divvy up crypto assets. So the Securities and Exchange Commission will get anything that looks like a security. The Commodities Future and Trade Commission gets tokens like Bitcoin, which look more like commodities. It would also appoint the CFTC, the main regulator in charge of crypto spot markets and exchanges, clarify some tax issues and mandates that stable coins must be backed by hard assets. Now, Alice, I know you have a theory about regulators and American financial history and how that all works together. Yes, and I can't wait to get into that, but we should save it for after my chat with Senator Lummis. Fair enough. Take it away. Thank you. Hello, Senator Lummis. Welcome to Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. It's a pleasure to join you. You're working on crypto regulation with Senator Gillibrand from New York. The result of the work that you've been doing is the Lummis-Gillibrand bill. It's a pretty comprehensive effort to regulate, you know, the entire crypto industry. Can I ask what your sort of most urgent priority was when you were crafting that bill? We wanted to balance the opportunity for the United States to be a leader in innovation with the need for consumer protection and regulatory sideboards. So the industry would know the set of regulations, the standards to which they're being held, while at the same time encouraging and establishing an innovative climate for the digital asset world. And crypto has been a lot more than just Bitcoin for for a while now. It's, It's this sort of sprawling ecosystem. And your bill divides up oversight among sort of major financial regulators. So stable coins will come under the purview of the bank regulators. The SEC would have oversight over tokens that raise money from the public. And the CFTC would have oversight over, you know, big, truly decentralized tokens like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which look more like commodities. Why is that the right approach to be taking? It's consistent with what we do now with traditional assets. Obviously, Bitcoin behaves more like a commodity. It can be judged by the Howey test, which is a U.S. court decision, which has been used over the years to distinguish commodities from securities. And so we're using that same Howey test within our bill to sort commodities from securities. There are some that are are both commodity and security-like that we're attempting to also address in this bill. And we're trying to provide definitions that are useful within the context of the, our current regulatory environment. One approach to, to potentially try and avoid getting too into the weeds on these distinctions would be to potentially just pick one regulator that is the crypto regulator. And I understand that there is potentially an alternative bill to yours being drafted by the Senate Agricultural Chair, Debbie Stabnow, and Senator John Boosman of Arkansas. And the details of that are not out yet, but it's supposed to be a bit narrower in scope and may essentially just do that, just anoint the CFTC as the crypto regulator. Do you think that a a single regulator would be the best approach and, and why or why not? I actually did consider that when we were having our original conceptual roundtables about the bill and decided not to take the one regulator approach because we see some existing characteristics that can be applied to digital assets, cryptocurrencies, 
we wanted to take the existing regulatory regime because we think that the skills, talents, and employees at those regulatory entities are already well-versed and trained in the aspects of commodities and or securities that they will be asked to regulate when it comes to cryptocurrencies. So it doesn't require this whole bending of the expertise because we're using existing expertise. If we look forward to a future where your bill has passed or some other regulation like it has passed, what would a well-regulated crypto market look like? And would it, if it were regulated in the way you suggest, have prevented something like the Terra Luna collapse, for example, from happening? Would it have protected consumers against those kinds of events? Yes. The answer is yes. Specific to Terra Luna, uh, which is an algorithmic stablecoin, our regulatory uh, regime would not allow algorithmic stablecoins that are non-100% hard asset backed. Our bill would provide that you had to be 100% hard asset backed, whether you are issued by a bank that is regulated by the FDIC or by a non-bank special purpose entity. So we believe we have hit the right tone with regard to stablecoins, which of course is a fiat backed payment instrument. We've tried to look at the purpose of a cryptocurrency in the way we regulate it. So there's an element of consumer protection and risk assessment balanced against the desire for innovation and to keep the United States the financial leader. Well, thank you so much for joining the show, Senator Lubbis. It's been a real pleasure having you. Likewise, Alice. Thank you. Alice, What do you think of this proposed legislation? Yep, it's time to let our listeners know just how much of a regulatory dweeb you are. Yes, I've been waiting for this. So America has a sort of patchwork quilt of financial regulators. There are at least six major ones. uh, The OCC, the Fed, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC and the CFPB. And... And this kind of reflects the country's Churchillian never let a good crisis go to waste approach to past financial crises. So each of these was born from a crisis. The OCC was created in the aftermath of the free banking era in 1863. The Fed was born out of the panic of 1907. The Great Depression in 1929 was so terrible it bore two regulators, the SEC and the FDIC. The CFTC was carved out of the Agriculture Department in 1975 in response to a food crisis blamed on the alleged manipulation of soybean and grain prices. And finally, the global financial crisis of 2008 resulted in the creation of the CFPB. So should we expect today's crisis, this crypto crash, to result in a new crypto regulator soon? Or should it be that, as the senators propose, each of these existing regulators gets a bit of the industry? Well, crypto might actually end up being the exception to this sort of little rule of thumb that I have. So this is sort of funny from my perspective. Um, Singapore has one point of regulatory contact. Um, the, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is both the, the central bank and it's the financial regulator for, for everyone. Um, which seems to be something that's that's pretty popular with investors. Um, I think then in the past, you've had examples of people who push back on the idea of having a single regulator because they actually want them to compete with each other. Um, Alan Greenspan famously didn't want one single US regulator because he thought it would make them become too rigid and over-regulate 
Um, and he wanted a bunch of different ones to compete against each other to, to keep them from doing that. So there's an argument that this slightly sort of crazy patchwork is actually a good thing as well. Whether you give crypto to various existing regulators or create an entirely new one to deal with it is actually a sort of very deep and important question. You know, it's easy to think that financial regulation is, is kind of a snooze, but what legislators are trying to grapple with here is the very nature of what crypto is. You know, is it just banking? Is some of it banking? Are initial coin offerings just the same as equity offerings? Is Bitcoin a commodity? Is it something more, something different? And what Senators Lummis and Gillibrand seem to have decided in thinking that it's appropriate to divvy it up among regulators that already exist is that a lot of what crypto is doing looks quite a lot like stuff we already have. You know, it's certainly sort of whizzier and uses new jargon. But when push comes to shove, if, if you're raising money from the public for a project in which they expect the value of it to be derived from some founder or group of people working on it, then that does sound an awful lot like you're just selling equities. So it's certainly pretty compelling to compare stable coins, which are uh, crypto instruments that are that are sort of pegged to a value. So you have ones, a lot of them that are pegged to the value of the US dollar. That's the idea, at least. You can compare that, for instance, to the free banking era of money in America or to a modern money market fund, or even to a bank deposit. It's just a payment instrument worth a dollar, and it's backed by whatever assets the issuer has. And those can either be safe and interesting and new and useful, or it can be more like a Ponzi scheme. I guess the other parallel is between the the decentralization that you see in some of these digital tokens, like, like Bitcoin, um, and in commodities like gold, or, or hog bellies, or frozen orange juice. Um, I suppose that the obvious difference is that those commodities are physical things with some kind of intrinsic value, unlike a lot of this digital stuff. Right. But the similarity between some of these digital tokens and those commodities is that, you know, no one's controlling or or determining, you know, what a hog belly is, what a what a piece of gold is, or what a Bitcoin is. They just kind of are. And that's why that sort of made regulators feel comfortable with labeling Bitcoin as a commodity. But essentially, once you've decided that crypto looks enough like these various kinds of financial instruments we've seen before, that they look like money market funds or like commodities or like securities, you can just give those bits of cryptos to the existing financial regulators. And the regulator that seems likely to get the most turf is the commodities regulator, the CFTC, which is why I called up Chairman Ros Benham to ask him what he thinks crypto regulation should look like. Russ Bannum, Chairman of the Commodities Future and Trading Commission. Welcome to Money Talks. So let's start with the big picture. Why does America need crypto regulation? Well, what we've seen over the past better part of a decade is an emerging market that really, in many respects, reflects and looks like our traditional financial markets. However, the underlying financial instruments are very different than our securities markets and our derivatives markets. And over the past couple of years, what we've seen is a lot of investors, customers who don't know the real risks associated with crypto and crypto assets get hurt and lose a lot of money. Uh, and I think this has really been the impetus for the past several years for regulators and policymakers and lawmakers to start to advocate for a strong regulatory framework around crypto markets. And how does the CFTC fit into this picture? You know, what role do you think your agency should play in regulating crypto markets, given its history as a future and derivatives regulator? Yeah, it's a good question, Alice. And, you know, we've been regulating crypto as a commodity, and we have this very unique authority in matters that involve fraud and manipulation. And 
to your point, we are a derivatives regulator, so we oversee futures, options, and swaps. But we do have this authority to go into cash markets and enforce our laws and bring bad actors to justice if there's fraud or manipulation. So over the past eight years, we've brought in a number of cases of just about 50 enforcement cases in the crypto space, as big as $100 million and down to a few hundred thousand dollars. So in your answer there, you touched on a couple of points. One is that your efforts are around regulating crypto as a commodity and also your authorities in the futures and derivatives markets gives you some sort of uh, authority over cash markets as well. But there are efforts to clarify a lot of these jurisdictions and clarify a lot of the ways in which crypto should be regulated, mostly using legislation. What would it be helpful for Congress to do? Why do you want them to act and Is it insufficient to just keep applying existing rules and legislation to crypto? So one bit about our enforcement authority and the cases we've brought is having a market regulator overseeing markets as they're trading so that we can either anticipate or bring bad actors to account using the tools, the surveillance tools we have, using the technology we have. So that's really, I think, the genesis of why we're seeing individuals advocate for regulatory oversight is we need to use those same tools that we have in the derivatives markets into the crypto market so that we can bring the transparency it needs. We've brought a lot of people to justice. We've collected a lot of penalties and returned money to people who have lost money. But ultimately, I think it's the tip of the iceberg. There's probably so much more going on that we're unable to see since we don't have that clear authority to oversee markets on a day-to-day basis. I was wondering whether I could put sort of a, a potentially sort of cynical take on some of the tussle over who gets to regulate what in crypto to you, which is that I get the impression from the crypto industry that they might quite like to be regulated by the CFTC, in particular, the CFTC rather than the SEC. The CFTC is a smaller regulator. It has about a sixth the budget and staff, and it tends to bring fewer enforcement actions. I think it brought about an eighth as many as the SEC last year. So given that, I can see why the crypto industry might want to be regulated by the CFTC because you know it might have less capacity to police the industry as forcefully. Do you think that's just a, a very unfair way to think about it? And, and how would you rebut that, that case? Well, you can't just simply look at number of staff or number of enforcement cases. You know, we, we bring quite a few enforcement cases relative to the number of registrants or participants we have. And I feel very confident that we, we are leveraging all the tools and resources we have to bring bad actors to account on all fronts. Now, There's a larger question about the intent. If you go back to the origination of the SEC and the securities laws, the intent is to bridge information gaps between an issuer of a security and an investor of a security. And that's extremely important. And that is very, very well done by our SEC here in the United States. But when it comes to a commodity, I struggle to find why we would apply that same policy intent or policy structure to a commodity financial instrument. So it really comes back down to some of the questions you asked earlier about, we need to think about this line and how we think about what constitutes a security and what constitutes a commodity. Tim and Benham, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thanks, Alice. Okay, so those are basically the proposals on the table. And we got a sense there from at least one regulatory body about how it feels about them. But crypto isn't just an American phenomenon. No, you're right. You know, the founder of Bitcoin might have been British. Kazakhstan is the second biggest location for token mining. And the biggest exchanges, like FTX and Binance, are headquarters in the Bahamas and the Cayman Islands. 
Appropriately then, it's not just America's many regulators who are fighting to oversee the industry. Other countries are trying to grab control too. Precisely, which is what we will be talking about more after the break. But before that... It is our favourite part of the show where we get to tell you why you should take out a subscription to The Economist. This week, we have a very special summer issue. Our sister magazine, 1843, has compiled a selection of long-form narrative articles to keep you entertained at the beach, where you will obviously be eating lots of frozen grapes. Yes, that includes a huge story on Mohammed bin Salman. You can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you are already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should then sign up, if you haven't already, to our newsletters. There's a whole slew of them at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, Alice, we have gone through what is happening in America, but who else is vying to be the one regulator to rule them all? So you can basically divide the world into sort of three buckets. There are those that have banned or taken a really hardline stance on crypto, like China, Russia and India. There are those that have gone all in on crypto, like El Salvador. And then there's everyone else who are somewhere in the middle. So most countries are in that sort of grey middle zone. They want to regulate some of crypto's ills while also encouraging some of the innovation. So that includes the US, but you also have seen the UK and the EU put forth legislation. At the end of June, the EU finalised a new law called Markets and Crypto Assets, or MICA, which is supposed to impose some order on the wild west of crypto markets. Here in the UK, regulators at the Financial Conduct Authority held crypto sprints in May and June of this year. They were gathering views on how to regulate the industry. And we've heard a bit from the regulators and politicians in this show so far. But our editor, Kim Gilson, happened to be in Paris during ETHCC, which bills itself as Ethereum's largest European conference. She did the very hard work of attending the conference to see just how the industry was reacting to some of the regulatory proposals. Like most of Europe, Paris was sweltering last week. But inside the ETHCC conference, even as the fans struggled mightily, the hot topic wasn't the weather, but the future of the industry. My private key is 0x257A6949. Okay, everyone's listening intently. That's good. In a packed conference hall, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of the Ether Protocol, outlined his vision for the future. So... Basically, I think, um, so this is, this is, I think, both my preference and also my impression of uh, something that a lot of people want for the Ethereum protocol, which is basically for the des- a desire that for Ethereum to kind of eventually settle down, right? He was so, referring specifically right now, to the technical so aspects of the future of the protocol. But for many attendees, there was a desire to see the industry move into a mature era in a lot of ways. 
Outside of the main area, I met Rebecca Redding. I'm general counsel of the Aave Companies. We're a group of software development companies that build blockchain-based software for the Web3 world. I asked her what she'd been seeing in the past year as the crypto winter has taken hold. I think the biggest thing that we've seen come to light is that on June 30th, 2022, uh, the European Union passed uh, or came to an agreement on MICA, the Markets and Crypto Asset Regulation. It is meant to be a very comprehensive piece of regulation covering what are called CASPs crypto asset service providers who are centralized actors, so exchanges, brokers, um, uh, the types of intermediaries you'd expect in the legacy financial system, but those of them who deal with crypto assets or digital assets in particular. And it is meant to be a uh, set of regulations that will explain how they handle a lot of different things. I've covered business and finance for a long time, and I've spent a lot of time uh, talking to big banks, especially in the wake of the financial crisis. And um, None of them would say that they loved regulation. They think it's paperwork. They think it's an extra cost. And I've been surprised here that everyone I've asked about regulation is like, yes, the crypto industry definitely needs it. Why do you think there is this sort of, I guess, more positive sense from the industry? What do you think is happening? I think it's twofold. Um, I think just as many of the regulators and policymakers that we've seen to date have come uh, to a resignation that crypto is here to stay, crypto, the crypto community has also maybe not resigned itself, but understood that for there to be mass adoption, um, there needs really at the retail level, you know, throughout the world, um, there need to be regulations and guardrails so that people, one, come to understand it more and two, feel more comfortable using it. So I think that there's an acknowledgement of that. Um and uh, I think that makes sense from a wanting to see crypto really go out there. I'm not sure anybody is excited about the bureaucracy that may come with it. Uh, but I think the crypto industry has been really proactive over the last year in terms of lobbying, uh, speaking to policymakers and regulators across the globe um, to really try to make the most sensible regulation that will both allow for innovation, keep things efficient, which is really important for the crypto industry because that's really where the value proposition is over the legacy financial world, while also ensuring that there are guardrails for consumer protection. Back at the very noisy main conference area, I met Simon Polrol, one person who's been proactive in that lobbying effort. I'm the president of EUCI, European Crypto Initiative, uh, which is a, a lobby group uh, at the EU level for the crypto assets industry. I asked him what he thought about MICA. So it's interesting in a way. Uh, I think it's generally good for the industry because it's a form of recognition of what crypto assets are and uh, the, the weight that they have in the current economy and maybe the, the role that they can play in the future. Um, and it's quite a balanced regulation with regards to what's uh, regulated in terms of uh, service providers uh, and uh, also token issuance is quite good. So I think in, 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 in general, it's quite a, a net positive uh, for, the, for the industry. What's been a bit, maybe a bit more worrying uh, is on, with regards to the stablecoins. It's a very, very stringent regulation that we fear may hinder the development of these very, very useful uh, payment and investment uh, uh, instruments uh, for in Europe in general. And uh, on the AML, so anti-money laundering side, um, maybe the, the legislation was a bit heavy-handed. Uh, and there's a lot of obligations that are not asked to traditional financial players, which we find a bit uh, unfair because the crypto uh, is not specifically more uh, risky than other, uh, than other ways of uh, financing the economy. 
Have you looked at what's going on in America at all in terms of regulating this space? And what do you think about that? Do you think there are some ways that are being discussed in America that could apply to Europe? Or are they completely different sort of issues? So the way uh, the U.S. regulated so far, which is basically not really regulating, um, it's not something that could apply in, in Europe because the way the regulators and the law are applied is, is broadly different. But in general, um, it's a very more, I would say it's a more practical way of, do, of dealing with things, looking at projects and then creating precedents with them. Um, this is a way that allowed, I think, a much more... Uh, um, quick development of the of the of the crypto assets industry in the US so it i think it was great at the beginning now we are at a, at a, at a stage where the US is also stepping up on this there's a few initiatives uh, to regulate the whole space so i think it's only a matter of time where you know Europe and the US will be basically on the same page uh, with regards to the regulation and we are really at the beginning of a broad worldwide movement of regulation But this enthusiasm for regulation doesn't mean that the industry has completely changed its ways. I stood for a while in front of an artwork called One-Armed Crypto Bandit, which spewed forth a lot of the beliefs held by many people in the industry. A love of free speech, a distrust of mainstream organizations, and of course, a fundamental frustration with capitalism. But overall, the sentiment seemed to be that Web3 was no longer in its infancy, and that in order to mature, it might need a little help from regulators along the way. I think this is a really fascinating time for crypto. Because on the one hand, as Kim found in Paris, a lot of the industry players are desperate for regulation. They know that the scams and ripoffs are bad for crypto. They want some police on the beat to shut that stuff down. And they also want clarity from regulators so that they know where to focus their sort of efforts on innovating. But you also hear this kind of shrill outrage at some of the efforts to apply regulation. And it's not like the same tone as the pushback I hear from traditional bankers who, you know, complain that Dodd-Frank is too unwieldy or the Volcker rule doesn't work as intended. You know, this whole spat, for example, over whether crypto tokens are commodities or securities, you know, it sounds really sort of niche and inside baseball. But to my mind, it gets like right to the crux of whether crypto is what it promises that it is. You know, there's so much talk about how these tokens, these projects are decentralized, how no one controls them or what will happen to them. And pretty much all the regulators agree that if that's really true, that they can be regulated as commodities. And so, of course, if you really believe in all the crypto stuff, if you're inside the crypto industry, you think it's all really decentralized and that being decentralized makes crypto sort of meaningfully different than the equivalent kinds of traditional financial instruments, of course, you're going to resist any implication that it's sort of anything less than that. You'll resist the idea that you're just issuing something that looks like an equity or a bond, because that essentially reduces a lot of crypto to just kind of regulatory arbitrage with a massive carbon footprint and some sort of different jargon. So when the crypto industry resists being bucketed in those ways, it's not just a reflexive reaction to, you know, them thinking that regulators are going too far. It's sort of more existential than that. Yeah, I find myself so sort of torn over this stuff because on the one hand, I, I see the value of, you know, uh, trying to make sure the innovation's still there and trying to make sure that the regulation isn't too smothering. And then on the other hand, I find myself 
very skeptical of some of the the use cases of these things. But there's a part of me that looks to say, uh, look at uh, banking regulation. Now, banking regulation exists to a large extent because everyone's got to have a bank account or, or almost everyone's got to have a bank account and and every government would like people to be banked. That isn't really the case with crypto. Um, and, and it does seem sometimes unfair to the idea of applying standards that exist to a financial product that we expect everyone to have access to and to use and therefore a certain level of safety and reliability to something that no one expects everyone to use. And, you know, you're allowed to take risk with the other financial products. And, and to some extent, why shouldn't crypto be treated a little bit more like that? There's another thought I had, which is that in this conversation, we're mainly talking about how assets should be regulated. We haven't yet mentioned how investors should be screened, uh, perhaps educated before they're allowed to play in these markets. Alice, is is that something that you've come across? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting idea. It's not something that I hear a huge amount of coming from regulators. You know, they feel like it's their role now to go in and prevent sort of the worst excesses of this from harming consumers. But it definitely is a good idea. There's a lot of very sort of intimidating concepts and jargon with crypto and and investors being more educated about what they're really getting into um, would certainly help. While all of these ideas, you know, might be good ideas, it's still a bit late for people like David Chang, an accountant in Brisbane, Australia. And cryptocurrency was something he read about online and was interested to try out as an investment. Initially, I decided to, you know, what's the harm? I'll just put in a couple thousand dollars and see what happens. But just like Sam, the crypto investor we heard from at the beginning of this episode, David unexpectedly found his crypto portfolio frozen after seeing its value plummet in the June crypto crash. So it was valued at just under $50,000 US. And, you know, that's in bear market, right? When I deposited the funds, uh, I think even back in October, November last year, it was valued at, from memory, like $150,000, $160,000 US. And David only sees one real solution to stop what happened to him, or worse, from happening to other investors in the future. I do think there should be some sort of regulation because having been through this, there's nothing stopping from anyone starting up a company under the promise of yield, then take investors' money and do whatever they want with it without telling the investors what they actually have done or even reporting on the outcome of those investments. So you could be left in the dark forever until the entire stack of cards come falling down. Stories like Sam's and David's do sort of really hammer home the point that there are sort of real human stories and and losses here. And that is why all of these sort of interesting debates about regulation are being had. And that's the main point that we want you to take away from this episode. But we couldn't wrap up the episode without first taking you through our stats of the week. So Michael Sumeya, who wants to go first? I will go first today, and I have a uh, typically very cheery money talks stat. This comes from the International Monetary Fund, which has just come out with its uh, world economic outlook, uh, projecting what's going to happen for the world economy in the few years to come. The miserable statistic in it that I found is the proportion of emerging market 
bond issuers uh, with interest rates on their bonds now above 10%. And that percentage is 36%, um, which I thought was pretty eye-popping. To put that in some context, at the absolute peak of the chaos uh, in March 2020, when COVID was just sort of erupting, when the pandemic was causing lockdowns everywhere, that figure was 29%, just to get some idea of the stress that a lot of uh, developing countries and uh, the companies in them are under right now. Well, that was very on brand. Uh, I'm going to be weirder. And my stat of the week is around 80 years, which is how long ago it was that the average height of a woman was my height, which is 147 and a half centimetres. Currently, the average height of of a woman at the age of 18 is more like 160 centimetres. As we've gotten richer, we've gotten taller. Uh, Not me, though. I'm still very short at 147 and a half centimetres. I believe I'm about 178 centimetres tall. So maybe in 80 years, you'll have caught up with me, Sumeya. Hope so. How are you 178 centimetres tall? How tall are you in real money? Five foot ten. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realise you you were that tall. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. You've not met Alice. She's a very I tall have. lady. I think you might have been sitting, perhaps like towered over you. Um... <laughs> I can see whether you're tall, even if I'm sitting, though. That's not... <laughs> If you were sitting, that would be a problem. But if I'm, I can still tell whether you're tall if I'm sitting. All right. I'm very tall, Mike. I don't know what to tell you. My stat of the week this week is 17, which is the number of yachts that have been seized belonging to Russian oligarchs since the war started in Ukraine, which is approximately one Russian oligarch yacht seized per week. I don't know whether the uh, war will end before they run out of yachts, but uh, yeah, 17 is how many they've got so far. That's great. I think we need a sort of countdown. We need a total sum of the number of yachts and how long it's going to take to to collect all of them. That would be great. I'll get to work on it. Our thanks this week to Senator Cynthia Lummis, CFTC Chair Rostin Benham, Rebecca Rettig and Simon Holroo. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us and send us statistics or just to me at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Alan Haberjack. Our editors were Harriet Noble and Kim Gittelson. Our sound engineer is Timo Seiler. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.